Grace is free. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and open to Acts chapter 12 this evening to continue in our study of the Acts of the Apostles. By the way, when I mentioned earlier about that card from President-elect Bush that had Jeremiah 29.13 on it, we would call it a coincidence. If we were in the flesh, we'd call it a providence in the spirit that that is Tim's favorite verse of the whole Bible. And it always has been. And when he sent me that email telling me about it, I knew what a blessing that would have been for him to see his favorite verse. Jeremiah 29.13, he sought the Lord... Tim, Brother Tim did, and the Lord showed him the truth and showed him himself because he sought him with his whole heart. There was a day many years ago when Bruce Taylor was instrumental and Stuart Crane in bringing him to his first Baptist assembly in Detroit, Michigan, and I happened to be ordained that Sunday. And in the receiving line, he didn't know any different. He wanted to give me the right hand of fellowship too. And in that receiving line, he said, you're going to be hearing from me. And I did. Amen. And we ex- began some correspondence, and he was delivered from the Church of Rome to love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and in truth. Amen. And it's a great story and a great blessing. I don't want you to ever forget that. In Jeremiah 29:13, if ye seek me, ye shall find me when ye seek for me with your whole heart. Acts chapter 12. May the Lord bless us tonight as we look at this chapter. Now I want to tell you something. I, th- I believe that at times people think that I try to be a little melodramatic to add weight to my sermons. I want to tell you this. That the sermon this morning was more important than the sermon this evening for your lives. Amen. However, I want to bless the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers all of his own in his good time and in his good way. And we're going to see it in Acts chapter 12. But I hope that you will read Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 through 21 this week. And that you will seek to be found in him and to know him. If the Apostle Paul would say that I might know him. Who knew him better than any man. We should definitely be seeking to know Christ. If by any means we might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I hope that you'll read those verses. But now let's look in Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. In Acts chapter 11, we saw the apostle Peter coming back to Jerusalem to defend the conversion of Cornelius because he was the first Gentile convert. And they wanted him to explain what he was doing, eating, with Gentiles. And he explained their full conversion. And when they heard the whole story, they glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And then we saw Paul and Barnabas getting together at a place called Antioch, where they were first called Christians, because they must have looked a whole lot like Jesus Christ. And they must have talked a whole lot about Jesus Christ. And they were called Christians there in Antioch. And they continued there for a year teaching the people. Then a prophet came from Jerusalem that said, there's going to be a great dearth in all the earth, and the saints in Judea are going to suffer. And so the brethren in Antioch 
purpose to send a donation, and Paul and Barnabas took it to Jerusalem, and so ends chapter 11. Now at that time, now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. The church was growing. It was multiplying. If you were the ruler of Judea, Galilee, and the areas around there, and you saw this religious sect growing geometrically, would you be a little concerned? Especially when they kept talking about another king named Jesus Christ. Would it bother you? If your, if your title was king, Herod, and they were talking about another king, would it bother you? Especially when you're growing so rapidly. Especially when he hears that a centurion in the city of Caesarea named Cornelius was converted also and his whole house. And there were Gentiles now being converted. Herod was an appointed ruler. He was a vassal of the Caesar of Rome. He had very little authority of his own but what was given to him by Rome. Yet they let him be called king because he helped the Caesars by keeping authority and government in his little tiny section of the Roman Empire. He was an appointed man. Now in order to keep that appointment, you didn't give Rome any trouble and you didn't want any emails arriving in Rome explaining that there was any trouble in your province or your territory. So he sees this great growth going on, and he reaches forth his hands, not literally. Please re- learn to understand your Bibles. We don't want to go look up hands to find out what verse 1 means. It means he reached forth those that were his hands, were as his hands, to vex certain of the church. Now we're only told about James, but it says he reached forth his hands to vex certain of the church. We don't know what else went on. How many others were persecuted by being buffeted in the streets or losing their homes or whatever, but he did kill James with the sword, according to verse 2. Now there's lots of Herods in the New Testament. And it'll get you confused, or, or you'll think they lived a very long time and ruled a long time. There was Herod the Great that killed all the young children in Bethlehem, two years of age and under, when Jesus was born, and he died shortly Thereafter, when I say shortly, I mean within a year or so, he died. He was Herod the Great. And then there was Herod Antipas, who followed him, who was the one that killed John the Baptist, and whom Jesus Christ referred to as that fox, and who had a guilty conscience for the rest of his reign, thinking that Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead to haunt him. That's a good way to live, isn't it? with a conscience thinking that a man who's performing miracles is John the Baptist back from the dead. That was Herod Antipas. Then there was Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II, and this man right here is Herod Agrippa I. We're going to meet Herod Agrippa II also, aren't we? Because we know what happens to this Herod Agrippa. (laughs) By the time we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to need a Herod Agrippa II, and that's the one that Paul's going to meet. They were called Herod. They were called Agrippa. Josephus tells us about all of them. They're all public records as to the rulers of Judea and Galilee by the Jewish historian Josephus. We don't really care what he wrote or what he said. I just want to tell you that that's who we're dealing with. We've got four of them in the New Testament. Because remember, Jesus was called out of Egypt 
with Joseph after one Herod had died. And we're going to read about the death of another one right here. There's several of them. And if you ever want to read a sick, about a sick, sinful, wicked dynasty, it's the Herods. The treacheries among the Herods is unbelievable. The murders and the adulteries are unbelievable. And the treacheries, so that they always lived in constant fear and had to kill all their relatives that even smiled about the thought of maybe wanting an appointment by Caesar themselves. Horrible. Horrible. Remember how wicked Herodias was? She wanted John the Baptist killed just because he had criticized the fact that Herod Antipas had stolen her from her rightful husband, Herod Philip. There were lots of Herods. Don't worry about it. But that woman was stolen by a brother from a brother. And she killed John the Baptist for it as soon as she had a chance. That's the type of family it was. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, fishermen, some of the early disciples that were called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what? One time, James and John approached the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Can we have a petition of thee? And Jesus said, What do you you want? And James and John said, We'd like to sit on your left hand and your right hand when you sit in your kingdom. And Jesus said, Are you willing to drink of the cup that I have to drink of and be baptized with the baptism I have to be baptized with? And they said, We are. And he said, You will, but you may not sit on my left hand and my right hand. Those positions are reserved by my Father for those that he's prepared them for. Hear the words. We are able to drink of your cup and to be baptized with the baptism that you're going to be baptized with. James drinks the cup and is baptized with the baptism right here in verse 2 by suffering martyrdom just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. Remember those words. There's nothing wasted in all of Scripture. Do you know how much Jesus Christ spoke and did? The, The Bible tells us that if it had all been recorded, the world couldn't hold the books. Now, that's a hyperbole, but the point is, there was a lot more that Jesus did that is not written. But what is written is always of value. And if you'll think about it, and if James was a wise man, we know he was. He saw right there what was going to happen to him, and he's the first martyr of the apostles. He did drink of the cup of Jesus Christ. Who made the choice for James to go first? One of us is going to go first, brethren. The Lord makes the choice, and he makes it wise and perfectly, and he's holy and just in all that he does. When I look at a James dying this quickly, this might have been ten years after Pentecost, because of the date of the death of Herod Agrippa I. When we look at a situation like this and we see James going by the Lord's choice, we wonder about it. But the Bible tells us that when the righteous die, the other righteous ought to consider it very carefully that God may have taken them away from the trouble to come to give them rest and peace. Because, brethren, after you leave this life, it gets a whole lot better. You know, this world looks at death as something being really bad. It's your entrance into the kingdom of God and rest and peace. It's better. What did Paul say? To die is gain? Jim's new favorite song, 
is oh how happy to die. That's a glorious attitude. Ask him about it afterwards. He might even sing a solo for us sometime. He's talked to me about that song several times. How sweet to die. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we shouldn't look at this as a disaster. We look at this as a blessing on James and God's choice, so it was glorious and good. Herod reaches forth his hands to vex certain of the church and kills one of their most important leaders. What do the people of God do in such a case? They first of all remember that Satan is behind all government leaders. And that's why we pray for our government leaders tonight. That's why we're going to pray for them regularly and frequently because we're told to. If you ever pray and wonder what I should pray for, go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and find out. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere for all those that are in authority and for kings. We're told what to pray for. But holding your finger always in Acts chapter 12, look at Daniel chapter 10. I want to remind you something, that we're involved in a battle that is far greater than anything that you can ever see with your physical eye. Look at the book of Daniel, chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. An angel comes to Daniel after he's been praying. He's been fasting and praying, and an angel comes to give him an answer. But look what the angel says in verse 13. Well, verse verse 12 is the angel coming to Daniel saying, Fear not, Daniel. Daniel 10, 12. For from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Here is an angel of God being held up by an angel of Satan for three weeks until Michael, a more powerful angel of God, is able to come and deliver him. We forget what's going on beyond your sight. Your sight is nothing but a mirror, an upside-down mirror. Jeff has reminded me several times recently. Your brain reads it upside down so that it ends up being correct. Talk to him about that afterwards. All it is is a mirror. You're just getting a reflection of everything that's here. But there is beyond our sight a conflict going on between the angels of God and the angels of Satan. And here is an example of it in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13. Also in this same chapter, we can see in verse 20, when the angel's about to leave, the angel says, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. He's going to go fight with demonic powers that were behind the kingdom of Persia, and then when Persia was overthrown, there would be demonic powers behind the kingdom of Greece. So when we see Herod vexing the church, it is Satan being allowed to manipulate an earthly ruler to punish the people of God. I want to remind you that the powers that be are ordained of God. It doesn't matter how wicked they are at all. 
doesn't matter one bit. When it says the powers that be are ordained of God, that was the present tense in approximately 55 AD, which was Rome, as pagan and as perverse as you could get. But Paul said those are God's rulers. God called Nebuchadnezzar his servant about 50 times. Because all Nebuchadnezzar ever did, the greatest king, was the will of God. God used that king over and over and over. God says of him, and there's so many verses, I'm not going to turn you there tonight, but you can go read in the book of Jeremiah. That's basically about Nebuchadnezzar coming to destroy Jerusalem. He is my servant. He is so much my servant, I've given him all these kingdoms. He is so much my servant, I've given him the beasts of the field. Even they are going to be working on his behalf. My servant. We always should remember that. People of God remember that there is a conflict going on that's beyond our sight. That's angels in a conflict between God and his people and the nations that they live in and pagan nations and their governments. But there is a God in control of them all. Amen. If that prince of Persia that withheld that angel for one and twenty days was needed to be taken out of the way by the living God, it wouldn't take one and twenty seconds. All he would have to do is send the man Christ Jesus and let that prince see the man Christ Jesus and he would fall down on his face and he would worship him and say, Thou art the Christ, why art thou come to torment us before our time? Don't ever... We always believe that. We believe Jesus Christ when he said that Satan is like a strong man who keeps his palace and he keeps his goods. But when a stronger man comes along, he's able to take away his defense and rifle his palace and take away. And he did. He took us away from the kingdom of Satan by the stronger man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Pharaoh. Did God do anything in the life of Pharaoh? He protected and preserved him from conception until he was crazy enough to drive his chariot into the midst of the Red Sea and be drowned by waters that even a horse would know he shouldn't face. But who took away his understanding? The Lord God did. Look at Revelation 17, 17. We can never be alarmed when kings do things. Because, brethren, we're living in perilous times. We don't know what the future holds. But I know what the future holds. Do you? Amen. God wins. Amen. Somebody find that bumper sticker for me. I know the future. God wins. I love that bumper sticker. And if we believe that, it gives us so much peace. Right. You can read the newspaper if you want to waste your time reading the newspaper, but you can, you can read the newspaper and go to bed and sleep because the Lord's in charge and he's going to win. And nothing's going to happen outside of his control and direction. And as long as we're doing what we are called to do, and we're not called to do anything politically, except pray. That's the New Testament. Revelation 17, 17. Let's read about God's control of kings. These are the ten nations of Europe and why a king would give his authority to the Pope of Rome. Four. Why would they do it? Here's why. Verse 17. God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast 
until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And what are the words of God? 1,260 years should be fulfilled. The kingdoms of Europe gave their kingdoms to the beast, which is the Pope of Rome, for 1,260 years until the words of God be fulfilled. Now, why would a king give away his kingdom? Because God put it in his heart to give away his kingdom. Why would a king named Cyrus the Persian say, I want Jerusalem rebuilt, and I want that temple rebuilt, and you know, now that I think about it, I even want to pay for it. Now, all you Jews that would like to go back and live in Jerusalem, go ahead and go, and I'll raise tribute from across the river to pay for it. Why would a king ever do that? Because there's a God in heaven. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. When thou seest the violent perverting of justice and judgment in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is it, that is higher than the highest seeth it, and there be higher than they. Amen. Higher than the highest. That's our verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. We see a Herod vexing the church, killing James. And we have our trust in God because God directs the hearts of kings as the rivers of water. It was God's time for James to drink his cup. It doesn't matter if James drank it at the age of 40 and his brother John drank it at the age of 90, as many think. God's choice. God's choice. Herod only reached forth his hands to do what the great God allowed him to do according to his timetable. I hope that when we read the newspaper, we can always read it with inside information. The inside information is that there are demonic forces at work in this world to promote evil, and there are angelic forces in this world to protect God's saints, and God's in charge of the whole thing. Could he end the conflict in one nanosecond right now if he chose to? Absolutely. Why is he letting it run? For his own honor and glory. And let's let it play itself out. Because if he's the great writer behind this drama that we're part of, I believe it's going to work to his honor and glory in a way that someday we're going to behold his splendor and his power. And and we're going to bless him and praise him for what is accomplished in vanquishing all of his enemies. Remember, he likes to promote his enemies. Just like any good athlete wants to only compete against the best. A boxer who always wants to take on scrubs is no athlete, nor competitor, nor not not even a man. But God will raise up men to the very height of power and then humble them. Who was the greatest king that ever lived? The most absolute power that was ever possessed by one man. Nebuchadnezzar. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do for seven years? He was on all fours. Why? Until he lifted up his eyes to heaven and blessed and honored God that exalts men and puts men down and is able to raise over kingdoms the basest of men and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. God does that. So when we read about a Herod, we don't go into despair and neither do we go into rebellion because we've got inside information. God's in charge. Right. I hope that you'll always remember that, brethren. We live in perilous times. We live in the last days. Things could get very ugly in this country. 
we want to trust the Lord. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to pray for our leaders. We're going to be as spiritual and as godly as we can. The Lord's going to take care of us. You want to see how he takes care of men? Let's keep reading here. Verse 3, And because he saw it pleased the Jews, that is Herod, he proceeded further to take Peter also. This is what we call political expediency. You do whatever you have to do in order to keep the people happy who keep you in power. There's a certain Dr. Crane that taught us that all governments are popular, which is true. All governments are popular, and therefore governments do what they need to to keep their popularity. And he kept his popularity here by keeping the Jews happy. They got excited when he killed James. When he saw their, when he saw their joy that he had killed James, he took another one of their enemies that they really couldn't stand, and that was Peter, and put him into prison. Now we have something in parentheses, brethren. We have something in parentheses. Why is it there? If it's in parentheses, do we really need it? Or will it help you in this passage? Then were the days of unleavened bread. What are the days of unleavened bread? The Passover feast. The Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread are exactly the same thing. Not partial. They're exactly the same thing. The feast of unleavened bread was seven days from the 14th of the first month to the 21st of the first month that you ate unleavened bread. And it began with the Passover supper because it was the feast of them, of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. They ate the Passover supper. Then for seven days they ate unleavened bread because they left Egypt so fast they didn't have any leavened bread. It's all the same feast. Very important though in just a second. And when he had apprehended him, verse 4, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Herod takes Peter, puts him in prison, and charges 16 soldiers to keep him. Four quaternions. A quaternion is a group of four of any type of people. But of soldiers, it would be 16 soldiers. Now why would 16 soldiers be charged to keep Peter? Because Peter was good at escaping from prison. He already had a reputation. Remember? Haven't we studied the book of Acts? Wait till you read about the pains that were taken to keep Peter. I mean, he's got two chains on him, and he has to sleep between two soldiers. Most soldiers don't like sleeping with the prisoners. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Because, now now, brethren, this this is what is, is very humbling. When you look at the pains that a man will go to, but he does not see that there's divine power behind a person. Right. Remember how we've noticed that all the way through? The Jews were so blinded that no matter what Stephen said, no matter what miracles Peter did, no matter that Stephen's face was glowing and shining like an angel's, no matter that he prayed for his persecutors as he was being stoned to death, no matter that he saw Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, they kept on stoning That's a blind and hardened heart. And brethren, he can blind and harden our hearts if we see truth and turn from it. Or if we make light of his invitation to his marriage, the gospel. If we make light of it like we read this morning in Matthew chapter 22. Now in verse 4, we've got that word Easter. Oh, and people get all nervous and excited about that word Easter. Oh, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. I guess they must think that Herod, trying to kill a Christian named Peter, 
was going to wait for all the Christians to finish with their Easter egg hunt before he killed Peter? No. No. There's nothing like that in here. Easter is an English word that for its secondary meaning, right after that pagan holiday of a spring sexual rites, it means the Passover of the Jews. Because the two were just connected because the Passover is held in the spring also. And so the English word Easter means Passover. And you were told that in parentheses so that you wouldn't be rattled when you got to verse 4. There it is. I'm serious. That's why it's right there for you to know because if all you had to do is know a little bit of English to know that it's referring to the Passover. They weren't having Easter egg hunts. The Jews weren't worried about Easter egg hunts. Herod was trying to take care of the Jews and honor them by waiting until their great feast day and their, their seven days of unleavened bread were expired before he did something. Do you remember the care the Pharisees went through? They said, let's not crucify Jesus Christ on the feast day. Lest the people get all alarmed and upset. Well, here Herod is honoring that because the Passover was so important to the Jewish mind. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the Passover. Herod is simply trying to honor the Jews, whom he's trying to please so desperately by wanting to kill Peter. It's in parentheses for discriminating Bible readers to see and know the truth before they even get to that fourth verse. Amen. Listen, brethren, this Easter, make it whatever you want to be. I've just told you what it is. But make it whatever you want it to be. It was only being observed by the enemies of the Christians. Because it was a day that was being honored by Herod, which was a day that was being held by the enemies of the Christians. He was not trying to help Christians. He was trying to kill them. This is not a verse that supports Easter at all. It's bizarre that anyone would even think of that. It's simply God gave us a verse in the Bible with the word Easter in it to see if there are people who don't want to follow him that will trip over this verse. And there are plenty that do. Neither Luke nor the Holy Ghost was endorsing in any way the spring sexual rite of Eostra, the worship of Astarte, a Babylonian Assyrian goddess. Peter's in prison, 16 soldiers keeping him. What does the church do? What do they do? Take up arms? Write petitions? What does the church do? They pray. Why why are we studying Acts? Why did I choose Acts? I chose Acts because we want to be like the apostles by looking at their Acts, the Acts of the apostles, and pattern ourselves after them. They prayed without ceasing. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison according to verse 5, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Brethren, this was an unrighteous act. It was an unrighteous act to kill James. It was an unrighteous act to take Peter and apprehend him without just cause. Couldn't that easily be argued? But they didn't argue that. Unless there were means that were given to them to argue. The Apostle Paul would would appeal to government authority whenever he needed to that would benefit him. Whenever we can benefit from our government, we are going to go to the tits of government and draw from those great big breasts. Do you know what the Bible tells us about Gentile kings and queens? They are our nursing fathers and our nursing mothers. 
And when Paul was on trial, and he was not getting a fair trial, and he was presenting his case clearly, and, and he was going to be turned over to the Jews and killed, he says, I appeal to Caesar. He invoked the ultimate authority in the Roman Empire, and that was that pagan sitting on a throne in Rome. But I want to tell you something about that pagan sitting on the throne in Rome. He was God's man of the hour. He was the ruler of the Roman Empire, and Paul appealed to him to protect his own life. And so we have a very unrighteous, unjust case here of what Herod did, but look what the church did. There was a spiritual response. It was a spiritual response. They saw the warfare that was going on behind the government, and they submitted. Jesus Christ had taught them to submit. Remember, show me a piece of money. They brought a piece of money. Jesus looked at it, and it had a picture of Caesar on it. Do you know that when you're in the land of Israel and there's a piece of money floating around, and it's being used, and it's in common circulation, and it's got a picture of Caesar on it. Do you know what that means? It means that your government no longer exists, and you have a de facto government. You know what the de facto government was? The government of Rome. And Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do you know what we've got? When I pull this thing out, I find a pyramid with some all-seeing eye sitting above it. Do you know what? We're all using those things. Do you know what that means? We have a de facto government in this dear country of ours. And so we pay. We look into Acts chapter 12 and we see a king moving unjustly against the people of God, but we also see their reaction. We will obey God in any conflict. Have we seen that already in Acts? When the government told Peter and John, you may not preach in the name of Jesus Christ, what did they do? They preached in the name of Jesus Christ. When we're told that we cannot preach against sin because it's violating some hate legislature, what will we do? Preach Preach against sin. When we're told that we cannot train our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but they must be taught a socialistic agenda, what will we do? We will train our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What if we run into some situation where there's a technicality that we might be able to use But if we were to use it, we'd be offensive and look like we were rebels. What will we do? We'll submit to government. They once came tempting Jesus and Peter. They got to Peter and said, hey, Peter, does your master pay tribute? Peter went and got Jesus and said, do we pay tribute? And then Peter gave him a little lesson saying that tribute wasn't justly collected from him. But he said, I don't care. Go down to the sea, cast in your hook, the first fish that you pull up, open its mouth, and you'll find a gold coin there and pay them, lest we offend. Because the last thing we want to go down for in our, in our cause, because our cause is Jesus Christ, Amen. period. The last thing we want to go down for is being a rebel. Amen. We want to go down for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Now what if the power against us is so great that it threatens our lives, what do we do? For the gospel's sake. We run and hide and lay down our lives. If we're put in a coliseum, we don't take up swords against other men for the cause of Christ, we die. If we have a chance, we run run and we hide. What did the great apostle Paul do? How did he leave the city of Damascus when a garrison of the Damascenes was sent after him? At At night in a basket over the wall let down by cords. That is what we've learned in the book of Acts. 
And that's what we want to do. Christ is our king, brethren. He's the blessed and only potentate. We put our trust in him. Now, they didn't pray vaguely. They didn't pray merely. They prayed without ceasing unto God for Peter. Very specifically, these people came together. We're going to find them praying in the middle of the night in a house. Praying to God for Peter. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When we prayed tonight, I hope that you believe that. When we, do you know why? And I believe this. I don't know if you believe it, but it doesn't matter. God believes it, and so do I. I believe this. Why has our country had unmitigated prosperity for the last 19 years since 1982? Because this congregation has prayed for it. We have prayed specifically for God to bless and prosper this country so that his people living in the midst of it could have a peaceful and prosperous life. Because that is what the people of God prayed for in the nation of Babylon, as Newell mentioned in his prayer tonight. We prayed for it, and God has granted it abundantly. 19 years. Now, if it's about to come to an end, and it may... We'll still thank God for the 19 years and bless his name for hearing our prayer and pouring out his blessings on a nation that does not deserve it. I remember when there was wars in our streets in the 60s. Others of you that can remember that. Look, we're living 40 years later. It's amazing. We thought then that this country was coming to an end. The Lord's been very merciful, brethren. We should be very thankful to him. He is in charge. Let's get on to Peter here. He's sleeping between two soldiers. Now, brethren, how long did the Lord take to rescue Peter? Did he rescue him immediately? Verse 6, And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. When did the Lord answer that prayer? At the midnight hour. Literally. And figuratively. The church has been praying to God for Peter... But he's been in there for a number of days. We don't know how long. But the same night that he was going to be killed the next day, finally, the Lord delivers him. That gives us a little lesson right there to be patient and wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I say wait on the Lord. We do not know his timing. And he wants us to trust in him by taking us right to the very end. When the Lord makes it finally clear that his will is something else, then you can cease praying. The great example that we know from the Bible is David praying for his son. The first son that came by Bathsheba. God said, I have forgiven you, but I'm going to kill the child. And David fell down and began beseeching God on his face on the ground for that child for seven days and seven nights. He did not eat, but he prayed. Then the child died. He could tell by the activity of the servants that the child was dead. He got up, washed his hands, and said, let's eat. And they couldn't believe it. And he said, well, obviously God has revealed his will in this matter, but until that child was dead, I was going to beg him for mercy. That is a praying man. And that's the character of a man after God's own heart whose heart was right because he had repented. The Lord immediately blessed him with another child, and that child's name was Solomon. And it meant the Lord loved him. That's how we ought to pray. And this church was praying right that night, even though they knew the next morning Peter was supposed to die. That's why they had a little difficulty when he finally made it to the door. But we'll see that in just a second. 
this, let's come to verse 7. Brethren, we've got 16 soldiers. We've got two sleeping on, on, he's sleeping in between them with two chains, probably attached to him and attached to them, so that he couldn't move. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him. I wonder what that means. Came upon him. Was he standing right there on top of him or over him? Came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. He turned the lights on. Brethren, when an angel turned the lights on, it's bright. Go read the account of angels in the Bible. Men fall at their feet as dead. He turned the lights on. What did the soldiers do? Get up and pull the alarm switch? Sound asleep. What happened to these things? You know, that little, that little eyelid we have doesn't block out bright light. God closed their eyes. Right. And he smote Peter on the side. I'll take a smiting if I'm in prison and an angel wants to get me out. He can kick me anywhere he wants. Just get me out of here. But he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. What sound do chains make on stone? Did the soldiers hear and go pull the alarm? God closed these things up. They're peacefully sleeping about their next promotion and dreaming of what Herod's going to do for them. And chains are clanging around on the floor. A bright light's on. There's movement. Peter is getting up, and they sleep on. Now, what petition could we ever put together By taking up arms, what could we ever do? By fighting, what could we ever accomplish like the Lord can accomplish from a prayer meeting? Brethren, we can't shut their eyes, nor can we shut their ears. Yes, you can talk about killing one of them, killing five of them, but then the problem is that 20 million more come, and you're unable to handle them. The Lord takes care of it, and he takes care of it so gloriously. Peter, get up. The lights are on, the chains fall off. And the angel said to him in verse 8, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. We need to travel. So get ready for traveling. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. Even Peter didn't fully grasp yet what was going on. Chains are falling off. The lights have come on. He's told to get dressed and get moving. He follows the angel. Doors are opening. He's being led out, but he still he thinks he's just having a vision. Too good to be true. When they were past the first and the second ward, you know how prisons are designed. They're not going to give you just one door to go through. There's going to be several that you've got to go through. They go, after, they go through the first and the second ward. They come unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city. I, I would assume that it was pretty substantial, to hold crowds back from trying to lynch or rescue prisoners there, especially in an occupied country. Wouldn't you think that it would be pretty substantial? Which opened to them of his own accord. I like that. The Lord made it kind of personal there by calling it his own accord. The gate just opened, and the angel and Peter walk on through, and they went out and passed on through one street. The angel took them a block away, and forthwith the angel departed from him. Now, brethren, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed and only potentate. Amen. Herod? Should we get nervous about Herod? The Lord Jesus Christ is king. Right. Chains fall off. The light shines. He leads him through the first ward, the second ward, the big gate to the city. Oh, 
just opens of itself. And Peter walks a block away, and the angel disappears, and Peter is standing there in the dark. And finally, he comes to his senses. Verse 11 says, And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. That is a deliverance. All the people were a minority. We're a small minority, brethren. The people of God are a small minority. But when God is on their side, and I do not mean to be trite with that expression, we are in a majority because we have the strong man on our side. Because God sent an angel. How many Assyrians in one night did an angel kill in Isaiah 37 and verse 36? 185,000. 185,000 in one night by the angel of the Lord. And it says in the morning they were all dead corpses. How many angels does God have? More than you can count. John would say 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Is that a pretty good army? When you've got that many with that kind of strength. Yes, it is. That's where we put our trust. Verse 12, And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. We're going to meet this Mark later. We call him John Mark sometimes. Where many were gathered together praying. There wasn't just a few. There were many. Many were seriously beseeching God for Peter. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. She gets her name in the Bible. This damsel named Rhoda gets her name in the Bible because she went to the gate. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness. You know, the Bible speaks about thing not believing for gladness. The disciples didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead because of gladness. They were so glad, they couldn't believe it. It's too good to be true. But here's this Rhoda. She hears Peter's voice, and because she's so glad, she forgets to open the door, the gate, she runs back into the house. But she ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, The Lord be praised. He's answered our prayers. Thou art mad. We've had a couple brethren in this church who have a couple times in this assembly got up and prayed and said, Lord, we thank you. And then they laid out a petition. Lord, we thank you for the answer that you're going to give to this petition. That's believing. And I've always liked that when I heard that and saw that and observed that. These people are praying, and when they get the answer, they still didn't believe. And we're not going to make fun of them, brethren, because we're unbelieving and doubting too many times ourselves. How quickly do we give up sometimes in our praying because we don't think God's going to answer us? We're not going to make fun of these people. We're going to rejoice in God with them because they eventually found that it was Peter out there. Verse 15, they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. They were difficult, folks. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. 
the Lord was merciful and did a great work. Amen. And brethren, if we'll trust in him and pray, he'll do great works for us, right. even if they involve a nation and a king and the expectation of all the people of the Americans. Right. He can take care of us. Amen. I hope you believe that. Amen. Times could get ugly. We need, to, we need to know exactly where we should stand according to the word of God, not according to your idea of manhood, nor your idea of patriotism, but our idea of what saith the Lord. Amen. Verse 18. Now as soon as it was day, <clears throat> there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. I love Luke's words. There was no small stir among the soldiers. I want you to notice that there was no stir the night before. God left them in their little dreams of sugar plums dancing in their head all night long. But it was the next morning when they woke up. The chains are empty. The gates open. No small stir. And do you know why? You didn't get fired. You didn't get demoted in these days. If you let a prisoner go, you lost your life. There was no small stir. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not... He examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and their abode. Why didn't the man ask a few questions? When he examined those keepers and said, we woke up, and he was just, what would they have said anyway? When he examined those poor keepers, they hadn't seen anything, they hadn't heard anything, and he was gone. They lost their lives for it. God knows their souls and what they had done. All that's in the hands of the living God right. who doeth all things right. Amen. Now, brethren, verse 20. Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. Now, there's a one-verse description of the political, social, social situation, economic situation in Judea and Galilee. One verse is given to it to tell us a little bit of background. Here were some people from Tyre and Sidon that needed Herod because their country lived off of commerce with Herod's area of authority. So they come to him and they make the Chamberlain their friend, and they're doing anything they can to win Herod. They're most gracious. They're eager to please him. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, Josephus knows all about this event and writes about it in detail. He says he wore a coat that was made of pure silver. And when he came out into the sunshine, you could not look at him. That's what's written in history. Matters little. All we, we, we can read right here. But the Lord takes notice of his royal apparel. Upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. He gives a speech. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And right there are Herod, the Herod we're studying tonight, who killed James, who tried to kill Peter, who reached forth his hands to vex the church, is about to meet that God. He is given one of those choices in life, brethren, that we're given often. I'm going to apply this in just a second. He was given a choice. He had men ascribing to him deity. 
He had men saying that he wasn't a normal man. He was a god. He should have got down on his knees and begged them to change their statement. Do we know that, that that's what he should have done? What did Peter do when Cornelius fell down and tried to worship him? Stand up. I'm a man just like you. What about in another city? We're going to read about it later. Where the priests of Jupiter and Mercury come out and try to give sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And they run in among the people and stop them from worshiping them like gods. But this man doesn't do it. This man receives those words. And brethren, I hope when something good happens in our lives by the grace of God, because every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, when anything good happens to us, give God the glory. Amen. He was in the valley of decision, and he made the wrong decision. He accepted their praise. And verse 23 says, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms, and gave up the ghost. Immediately, that man became very ill with worms. And eventually, he gave up the ghost. We do not know the timing. The verse does not explain the timing to us. It just tells us that immediately he was struck, he was eaten of worms, and he gave up the ghost. The historical record is he laid in pain for five days. But he got it right then. Now, I've always believed. See, I don't really care what Josephus says. I'm going to tell you what I like about this verse and what I personally believe. They all got to see him eating of worms right there in front of their very eyesight. But it doesn't tell us that. It just tells us that he was struck immediately by the Lord Because he didn't give God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost, it doesn't tell us how long those worms took to eat him. But he was eaten of worms. Now how about that for a man who's a king who thinks he's a god and who's wearing royal apparel of pure silver? Because there's a blessed and only potentate who is higher than the highest. Amen. Give God the glory, brethren. We all have opportunities like this in our lives to give God the glory for every good thing. The chapter goes on and concludes by saying, But the word of God grew and multiplied. Herod reached forth his hands to vex certain of the church. He was going to stunt the growth of this church of Jesus Christ. Did he? No way. They prayed to God for him, and it kept right on growing and multiplying. And I want you to remember that God knows the difference between addition and multiplication. And he says that the church kept on multiplying. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Remember, they were there giving a gift of money to the poor saints in Judea because of the promised dearth that was coming in all the earth that Agabus the prophet had warned them about. They returned from Jerusalem to Antioch when they had fulfilled their ministry, that is, taking the gift, and took with them John, whose surname was Mark, who was the nephew of Barnabas, because Mary, where the prayer meeting was held, was the sister of Barnabas. We're going to learn that. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 tells us that. Barnabas had a sister named Mary. That's where the prayer meeting was taking place in Acts 12. She had a son named John Mark. Barnabas's nephew. That's important. You're going to see a conflict arise because of Barnabas's preference for John Mark later. Brethren, what can we learn from this chapter tonight? 
Nothing hinders the word of God when he sends it forth with power and purpose for it to be multiplied. It doesn't matter if a king raises up his hands to vex certain of the church. God wins. I hope you can put your trust in him completely. We live in perilous times. We've had a blessed time of prosperity and peace in our country. We don't know what's coming. We're going to continue to pray for peace. But if trouble comes, and whenever you see the violent perverting of justice and judgment in a province, there is that is higher than the highest. And his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we can put our trust in him. Amen.